Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Season 4, Episode 12 of Drive-by Cinema. I'm Rick, and here's Paul. my co-host Paul. Rick's co-host, yeah. Hi, welcome to Episode 12, I think, of Series 4, Drive-by Cinema, everybody. Listen, last mm. week, in yes. the pre-show section oh, that we chat about random things in for some yes. reason uh, and also correct our mistakes but there haven't been any so I think we're cool though. belatedly and somewhat grudgingly on my part but yes go on I made a start on asking you a domestic question about cookware and you derailed me into a discussion about your culinary abilities and your lack of taste were you saying I was avoidant in answering your question I don't know I don't know what your motivation was all yeah, I know I'm is intentionally avoidant or maybe I just well I'm digressive anyway I think by nature but. well I think you may have sensed that nobody gives a damn about cookware discussions anyway, and therefore trying to avoid it, which is fair enough. What, what was your cookware question, Richard? Well, I want you to cast your mind back to cast when we went skillet. off to university. University, because, as they say these days on Sky News, university. My mum... They do! The whole London accent has changed, but go on, go on, carry on. My mum packed me off with a bunch of stuff, including... Stop right now. Okay, I'm going to be digressionary. They do a whole pack for male students now. It's aimed at male male students, 18-year-olds. And it's a whole box you just take down. It's got everything for 250 quid. It's amazing. Sorry. <laughs> just for male students? But... Well, yeah, because it's very much, you know, not female neutral. Not Starbucks pumpkin spice latte neutral. It's male grey neutral, all of it. Like the duvet's neutral grey, everything's neutral grey. Right, okay, okay. So it's unisex, in fact. Maybe it's, maybe by default it might be, but I think it's demographically aimed at males that can't be bothered going to Ikea and going to home base and going to wherever, going to three or four places to get their stuff. Because I think, gender speaking, men tend to like do their shopping direct. Would that be fair to say? Uh, I wouldn't like to maybe make not it these a wild generalisation. But, maybe, maybe well, right. I mean, those, but I think statistically these things kind of come true, don't they? Still, listen, my mum had given me in my pack of stuff that I didn't ask for, right? Like, there we go, you see. <laughs> She'd given me a T-Fowl nonstick frying pan. Yes. And I think it's fair to say over the three years that I spent at university, I don't think I used it once. Richard was a very, a very, very, I don't know how he, if Richard's very good with his finances, he managed to eat in hall. Yeah. Most days, I think. Yeah. Or every day. Even. The alternative would have been what? What like carrying all your cookware and stuff to the communal kitchen, and where were you keeping all your ingredients? Do you not think you missed out on a bit of student life there? I, I dare say so, but do you regret that? No, you don't. Obviously, <laughs> I don't know whether I regret it or not. It's simply a fact that I couldn't really see an inviting way in which I would ever start cooking. In Microwave our... in room with mini fridge, maybe. I didn't have a microwave in my room. Nor yet a mini They're fridge. Fifty pounds a mini fridge, similar kind of price. Yeah, but fifty pounds would buy you a lot of meals at the the cafeteria in the hall, uh, right? I just like I think back to our student days. It's like only one of us brought a TV down to college. It's incredible how we didn't like spend money on ourselves. Like we went <laughs> to study. It was all monkish or ascetic in its in its approach, wasn't it? It's incredible compared to the expansive life that students have these days they've got the gym they've got really nice swish gyms really nice swimming pools they've got all that counselling and support you know they've got kitchens right next to their kind of room family all that kind of stuff so yeah anyway sorry to get to your point because I am digressing frying pan so that frying pan stayed with me obviously when I left university when I started did it? living you know my life I did use it I started using it more obviously when I left university I actually cooked occasionally not very heavily let's be honest but that frying pan, that non Richard does a nice fried egg. I do do a good fried egg. I do a good omelette as well, apparently. I've never seen him do it, but I know, because I know what a kind of technical, exacting kind of personality he has, and those kind of people do eggs well. I do. <laughs> sorry, that wasn't meant to be a dig. Go on, sorry, sorry, Orange. That frying pan lasted yeah. me, I would estimate, 20 or 30 years. Like are, you years. The queen, are you getting to the, to the Queen Mother's fridge point? I think you are. I don't know. I don't know. The point You're is... You're sure me, aren't you? It finally started wearing out, you know, flaking off the... When it goes, it goes, stuff. yeah. yeah. Chucked it away. Yeah, I'm not sentimental. It's just a frying pan. 
bought another tea file frying pan from Sainsbury's or something. Last as long. Lasted about six months, if Correct. that. Correct. Really, you're making the a... QMF. You're making the Queen Mother's fridge point. Which is what? The, the Queen Mother bought a Frigidaire, I think it was, or a hot point fridge, 75 years before her death. And it worked without repair until the day she died. Good grief. And yes. then when she died, did it stop working? Mysteriously. I don't know about that. That would have been very poetic, <laughs> wouldn't it? Okay. Like Lassie that comes back to meet its owner, you know, uh, across uh, Australian rail tracks. I don't know. Yeah, there, I don't know. But the, the, I mean, you make a fair point. I mean, is it, is, is it perceived obsolescence or is it planned obsolescence? It's not obsolescence, is it, when they plan for things to break down? I don't know what you call that exactly. Planned obsolescence, uh, it's called. But obsolescence is perception rather than working reality, isn't it? I think. But what did I do? Did, did I just buy a cheap frying pan in a supermarket? No, no. Two things, okay. The material T-File was made out of is not the material T-File is made out of today. Is that Although because both, Teflon used to be poisonous? Yes. They're both proprietary materials, Teflon in particular. Teflon doesn't come off. It's non-stick and non-scratch and non-come off, even at high temperatures. Like, if you've ever left your, your, your T-File or generic uh, non-stick pan on the hob, accidentally for half an hour or whatever come back uh you'll see quite a lot of black bits in your cooking and if you ever try to use it again yeah. ah yeah no i know that you're not supposed to overheat them because that will destroy well, that didn't coating. happen you know your old t-file pan from late early 80s mid 80s when it first came out you could overheat and it wouldn't come off it was it was proper hardcore stuff but it did come off slowly and it was a forever chemical and one that was forever chemical to toxic i think all chemicals are forever yeah i know <laughs> I, I speak a colloquially here, but it was it was prone to be a, a, a forever toxic chemical kind of thing. Well, I'll tell you, there is a kind of chemical that isn't forever, and those are radioactive elements, because they, they actually change to a different element. I think here the distinction is made between becquerels and millet civets, okay? One is the actual radioactivity, the other is the effect it has on the body, in the same way we could say forever chemical is one that tends to last or not find its way out of the brain. Would that be a fair... Oh, they're forever Re- in your body, you mean? Recasting, right. yeah. Recasting of the meaning of the word. Okay, anyway, so what are you saying about frying pans? They don't make them like you used to? Is that- well, I, the, Queen Mills, the Queen Mills fridge is a point. White goods in particular are engineered to fail, aren't they? Okay. And Apple, not, not white goods, but uh, you know, electronic goods, they're engineered to be not easily repaired and for warranties not to include... Not self-repair, but repair by a qualified technician just can't happen anymore, can it? Okay, it's obvious. I mean, the what's the other one? The light bulb, okay? The Philips light bulb. I mean, how long, how quickly could we have engineered a light bulb? It lasted very quickly. It took a hundred years for light bulbs to last, didn't it? Okay, so so yeah, I think you're making the point here is that of course they're not made as well as they used to be. In particular, the handle screws. Mine is going loose. Okay, I don't walk it. I don't. I don't flip my pancakes, okay? That screw is going loose. It has done the last three pans I've bought. Never <laughs> used to happen. And like everybody else, instead of tightening up, I throw it away and buy a new pan because they know that consumers... You uh, don't have a screwdriver. <laughs> can't be asked. Going down to your garage, rooting for finding the screwdriver, you know you've got somewhere, but because you moved in quickly, you know it went in that box or this box or the other box. Okay. So yeah, is it conscious on the part of manufacturers? Yes. They manufacture things to work well for a short time, yeah. It's certainly bad for tinker business if you buy one frying pan for a lifetime, isn't it? And pass yes. it on to your children. <laughs> but the listen, iron skillet, yeah. What kind of frying pan do you have? Non-stick? I have one in reserve, which is a small little <laughs> seven-inch one. Okay. okay. And then I, I've just thrown away one about four months ago, and the new one is about... It's ready to go again, you know. I don't know what's happening to them. They're just... And it's, this one's a T-file, so... So it's Teflon non-stick. Well, it's a new version of Teflon. I don't know what it is. They've changed it slightly, haven't they? Okay, a new formulation that nobody likes, apparently. Speaking of a new formulation that nobody likes, should we talk about this week's film after this music? Which nobody likes either, yeah. This week's movie is... 
it is either endless or the endless. I think it's the endless. It uh, has the definite article, yes. It does have the definite article. From 2017, I do believe, an American movie. Low budget, made by people that we've met on the road of exploration and weirdness before. Yeah, should be explained, because perhaps people haven't been keeping up. When we reviewed their other movie, or one of their other movies, Synchronic... Synchronic. It turned out to be one of our most popular episodes ever. Don't know why. Ever. Like, ever. But maybe all of the cast and crew or something have been passing it around and saying these guys reviewed our slightly obscure movie. Is that fair? Not really Yeah, we did pick it up. We we picked apart maybe some of the sci-fi... I don't know if it's time loop or time travel elements or time or space jumping elements. I can't remember what it was. It was a time traveling thing. Time travel. Yeah. 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 We did pick it apart slightly, but we lauded it for its value for money. Yeah. Since that was a very popular episode, it's really an experiment to see whether this episode attracts similar figures. Exactly. We're like those athletes that, you know, always carry the same crucifix because they won one race with it. There are three films that I've heard mentioned by these same guys that I think mm-hmm. maybe sort of share a universe or have some common characters or have something in common. Right. And is one of them supposed to be Synchronic and this one, The Endless? Synchronic, The Endless, and Resolution. I think Resolution was the first one. This one is the middle one, Synchronic, the more recent one. Right. But they're not connected story-wise, I don't think, really. No, definitely not. Well, it's certainly about timey, travelly stuff. Yeah, but I can't really see any deep meta rhythms there. I'll tell you a bit later what I think the resolution is all about. And I think it's sort of closer to this film than, say, Synchronic was to to this film. This movie starts with quotes on screen. Yes, from the erudite and much-quoted H.P. Lovecraft. Do you think quotes at the start of movies or indeed of books what what do you think about putting a quote at the start i don't mind it was pithy uh, huh. I, I like them folksy i like them kind of like a little bit homilistic if that's a word and this was this is hp lovecraft saying fear is fear and fear is the fear and fear is the worst fear you could have kind of thing i think he says Something the like oldest that. and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the mm. oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown yeah. So, a strong statement. I'm not sure one that can be justified, either empirically or philosophically. But nonetheless, that's his stance, and we have to accept that. So, we have to therefore, we have to therefore assume that, as is quoted Lovecraft, this this movie assumes the spirit of Lovecraftianism at its heart, doesn't it? But there's a second quote, although this one is by unknown. Who, let's face it, is one of the guys the who director. gives really good quote, doesn't he, Unknown? That does Anonymous. They're both really good. Friends tell each other how they feel with relative frequency. Siblings wait for a more convenient time, like their deathbeds. Like their deathbeds. I don't agree with that. This movie is about I, I can really brothers. tell my sister what I think of me and of her and us. That's really nice. That's a beautiful position to be in. I'm not sure it is for her now, but... <laughs> <laughs> No, she too, actually, yeah. I, I, I think siblings can be much more direct than friends because there's nothing really hanging on anymore, is there? You know. Yeah, you can't choose your family, can you? That's the thing. They're stuck with you. Well, they're, they're pretty much the same as you, aren't they, genetically? So It's not like you're stuck with a foreign body, is it? Sorry, Rich, I'm, I'm, wise, I'm waysiding and backtracking here. What did you want to say about this movie? I'm sorry. I'm just going to reflect on quotations. You know how whenever somebody mentions a quote by somebody famous, inevitably someone will say, actually, that person never said that, or there's no evidence that person said that. Churchill will be the very famous one, isn't it? Churchill, but it happens with every quotation you've probably heard. Someone will say, they've never said that. The one on radio he did say, didn't he? We shall fight them on the beaches. But that was a recording afterwards, after the fact, I believe. Ah, right. Because I think he, you know, he was making speeches to Parliament, but they weren't broadcast live, were they? I don't think Parliament broadcast live proceedings. But there is Hansard, so we'll know if he said it in, in Parliament. Cause sure, 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 yeah. Don't they have somebody writing all down about him? That the one thing he didn't say was, Hansard. I may be drunk, but you're ugly and I shall be sober in the morning. Apparently, that is apocryphally uh, attributed to him. Th- this is what I mean. All quotes end up in this little... No, they didn't, game. It's very frustrating and annoying. 
I mean, mid-century Americans, H.L. Mencken and Dorothy Parker, very famous, they were just, quote, machines, weren't they? So if they said something, it, they probably did say it, because all they did for their life was, was produce memorable, witty aphorisms and quotes, you know. But I think for anybody else, yeah. I think the greatness kind of attracts the rumour of quote, doesn't it? And then- well, also, it's basically impossible to prove that they were the first ones to say it as well. Yes, indeed. Anyway, this movie, as I say, it's about two brothers... And at the start of this film, a parcel arrives. These two brothers are apparently living together. They're not in great financial shape, aren't they? They've got no. a cleaning business that they're trying to do. They seem to be getting along. Do you know what I mean? Keep themselves busy. They must be charging at least $15, $20 an hour for that. So they open this parcel. It's not Amazon. It seems to be overseas. It says Power Avion on it, which is strange. Because oh. I don't think it's from overseas, is it? It's from people I know. And inside is an old-fashioned digital video cassette. Doesn't all airmail have power avion, even if it's domestic, though? But why would it have it in French in in America? Well, if you're gonna, if, if you're gonna, I should point out, if you're gonna <laughs> send something over uh, by airmail, it has power avion on, doesn't it? As well as by air. Well, it does if you send it in Europe, presumably, but not. I no, I think there's an international con- con- there's an international conventional standard on that, isn't there? Well, it says you have to put. The French word for by air on everything. To frank it with par avion and by, by, by air. Is that where the word frank comes from? Potentially, yeah. But I thought the British invented post, didn't we? Have you never looked at the, the international post office? Or the stamp. Uh, the uh, sending charges, the mutual mutual charges. That's interesting, it, yeah. It's a really sophisticated system, like, you know, because obviously... British Mail don't... British Mail? The post office don't operate... Well, they're a private company now, but they don't operate in, for example, Kuala Lumpur. So there's a reciprocal standard set of charges across the world kind of thing. It's fascinating and very, very complex. So for that reason, you know, I think intelligibility is important. So, of course, you'd have it in the two major languages, which, of course, are English and French. It doesn't change the fact that I don't think this is an international parcel. It isn't, but if you're going to send things by aeroplane... Even within the US, even a domestic... By default, because 90% of them are international, therefore, I think, you therefore frank it with... Like, if it comes through that it's going by airmail, it's going to get franked with the same thing, isn't it? This needs a huge asterisk for a future correction where I demonstrate... Otherwise, you'd have some sort of machine that looks at the postcode and says, okay, now I'm going to frank it with Paravion. No, wait a minute, it's domestic, I'm not going to frank. Okay, and then stop the machine for that one letter. It would... I think it's just easier... If it's going by aeroplane, just to frank it with the same thing, isn't it? Would be my suggestion. I mean, this maybe in Victorian times, Paul. <laughs> they may they may have treated mail in that way, but these days it's all. I mean, it could. Who, who knows what it ends up in the belly of a cargo plane or going to a, you know, on a railway thingy. I don't know. Uh, oh, okay. Who knows? Uh, anyway, they open this parcel and inside is a digital video cassette. Tape. Yeah. They're trying to work out what to fit it in, aren't they? To view it. Yeah, well, Aaron, the brother who finds this... Younger brother, I think, yeah. yeah. He, he goes to a yard sale, as they have in the US, and he finds an old camcorder that fits the tape. Whoa. Brings it home so that he can... How would you plug it into the TV? They don't have those RV... What are they called? RF sockets anymore, do they? What do they call the old-fashioned sockets for the three, the three little round pins... The three round pins. Yeah, you had your red one, you had your white one, and you had your... Oh, like AV connectors. Yeah. AV, sorry, yeah. Yes. Well, he manages to, anyway. And they watch on screen a woman, who I think he seems to know, giving a message to camera. And his brother, his older brother, who's, as I say, living with him, says... That's the cult that he rescued him from. It's a yeah, UFO. Yeah, surprised that was the beginning of the film. It's like, oh right, okay, they're in a, a cult. UFO death cult. He describes it. UFO as. death cult. And of course, immediately all our minds turn to Heaven's, Heaven's Gate. Gate. Though I don't think it's the only one, but certainly the most famous, isn't it? Of course, it wasn't UFO death cult. It was a comet death cult, wasn't it? But very similar. Nonetheless. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. Nice thing about comets is they're a bit more reliable, aren't they? Whereas you don't really yeah. know when a UFO is turning up. <laughs> they were looking to sort of whoosh up Superman up and catch the end of the comet, weren't they? The tail of the comet. Which is mostly splintering ice, I think, or something like that, isn't it? So Only in a spiritual sense, Paul. I don't think they oh. had any illusion that they were going to be physically transported there. I think they did, didn't they? 
honestly don't know, obviously. I mean, they they were lunatics, weren't they? <laughs> there we go. Okay. So they could conceivably have thought they were going on the tails of a comic, couldn't they? <laughs> In the same way, you might see a man in red dress being told by reindeer and believe it if you're of a certain inclination. The younger brother, Aaron, is defending this group and saying that he doesn't think they would have killed themselves, i.e. they're not a death cult. They're not suicidal. They're not like... Heaven's Gate might suggest otherwise, but... They're not like Jim on. Jones in whatever that was called. He, he does make some Kool-Aid references, doesn't he? Yeah. There's a fascinating podcast that explains the full story of... I listened to it, yeah. You said, Paul, you've got to listen to this. It's full of verbatim, verbatim audio recorders, which are terrifying. Yes, it's very creepy, isn't it? Yeah. Because you can hear the... the, the distended and detached the madness of it all yeah yeah the frenzy in their voices it's just absolutely terrifying the older guy is persuading his younger brother to go to the deprogramming counseling service so that they can carry on receiving support that they need they've been doing it for 10 years though is this right hmm is it that long yeah it's been a really long time so presumably they came out i mean what the late 20s early 30s now so presumably they came out as Late teens, they escape from the cult. Well, maybe we'll circle back to that shortly. Yeah. Oh, Paul missed that reference. Anyway, Aaron is doing Justin's hair, his older brother's hair. And at this point, I think annoyed by the conversation, he mischievously shaves an anti-Mohican into the middle of his brother's hair. He does, yeah. And Justin has to therefore explain his hair when he's at his counselling deprogramming (laughs) session. And that was the thing people used to do in late 80s parties as a teenager, teenager remember, is they would demohicanise you, or they would shave off an eyebrow, or, incredibly, they would put toothpaste inside your underpants on your pubic hair. What? That's not pleasant. On your pubic hair? Yeah, on your, the mound of hair above, above your bits. Thank you. I know what pubic hair is, Paul. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not your testicle hair or anything like that. Although they might have done that too. It would be pretty icky. But toothpaste would... Certainly sting on your scrotum, but it would also surely bleach your hair, wouldn't it? Is that... I don't, I don't know, actually. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. If it was whitening toothpaste, maybe. Aaron, the younger brother, he wants to go back to this cult that they left for closure and to say goodbye to the people that he knew. And his older brother, after having his hair shaved and stuff, eventually agrees to go back for one night, one day only. A mistake, I think, generally. Yeah, I mean, if you've escaped from a cult, you really do Why, need to be staying away, don't you? I think they managed to sort of convey that, that draw it must have. Yes, you know, People that are damaged are drawn to what damaged them, aren't they? Some weird kind of moth-to-light kind of thing that's going on there. And I mean, they were susceptible to falling into the cult, so I think it's inevitable they're susceptible to going back, aren't they? Yeah. All the same pull factors must be there, in a way. But I think the film sets up quite well. Is it actually a cult? We don't actually know at this point, do we? Justin, the older brother, is quite certain. And in the car, he's recounting all of the weird things that they had to endure or that they were in danger but of. Aaron doesn't remember a thing. Why not? Well, he was. I think the idea is he's too young, but he's not that much younger than his brother, is he? No. But he mentions uniforms, having to wear uniforms, redefining Castration. words. Redefining words, calling death ascension. Worshipping a deity in the forest that nobody knows about, and yes, Paul, as you've as you've said now three times, castration. castration. Yeah, clearly something that fascinates you about that. <laughs> this is Camp Arcadia, but are they castrated? I mean, we have, we've got to find out, I guess, haven't we? So, but as you say, Aaron doesn't remember any of this stuff, does he? No. And when he presses Justin on it, he said he never saw anything like that either. They stop at one point in the roadside at a memorial to their mum. And we learn that their mum had died in a car accident at this point. Which I think is how they ended up in the cult, we we learn later. But they pause at this sort of roadside shrine that they'd made and they examine one of the objects that they left there, which seems to be in good condition. And then... But there's something slightly weird going on in this little lay-by, isn't there? This stopping point. Not sure. It starts to get a bit weird, the film, at this point. This, this film actually has a very good knack of doing things that are off-kilter and making a, a, an uneasy sensation, I find. Maybe this you missed this bit. Because it is all presented quite matter-of-fact. They're both at this roadside. I think the younger brother points and says, what are those? 
And, and in fact, he says, what the heck are those? And I'm not sure exactly what he's pointing at, actually. There are a couple of things that are happening in shot that you might consider weird. There's birds wheeling around in a circle, like mm-hmm. blackbirds or something, flying round and around, quite a lot of them in a big flock. They don't murmurate, though, do they, blackbirds? Well, not normal blackbirds, no, they don't. Well, I don't know. What do you mean? What is a murmurate? A murmuration would be a starlings, where you get those incredible sort of wave patterns of 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 starlings all sort of looping round together, kind of thing. And people think that's beautiful and everything, but just remember how much bird shit is underneath <laughs> that cloud of birds. Particularly if you fed them laxative, yeah. It's shocking, Paul. You'd, you'd be amazed. The smell of ammonia around there would be overpowering. So... <laughs> So what? What's the? So there's birds flying, but is there anything else weird? Yeah, there's a knobbly stick stuck in the ground, and we'll yes. see quite a lot of these knobbly sticks. Not really knobbly sure how to describe. Spirit stick, yeah, a knobbly spirit stick. And also, there's a, a line of hills in the far distance. Are they shimmering in the in the Californian heat? I think it's supposed to be San in San Diego. Diego, but yes, they're in San Diego. Just in response to him, he says, like a volcanic event hundreds of thousands of years ago, and then erosion or something. But as the audience member, I wasn't really sure what Aaron was pointing at, whether he meant the hills. But the weird thing is, it seemed like Aaron was pointing more at the stick, this knobbly dun, stick. Dun, dun. And when we look back, I think I think one of them looks back in the direction they came from. Yeah. And they see more circling birds over there in that direction as well. Then the camera switches back to where they were looking. And now... And you may not have noticed this, because I rewound this to figure it out. A mountain appears behind a little kind of rise in the ground that might have been a line of hills. But now there's like an entire new mountain. Did you notice that? Uh, No, I didn't. Okay. (laughs) I also, I mean, this happens again later in the film where a trailer, a home just suddenly appears on a hillside, doesn't it? Yeah. More obviously, I think. Well, Justin is spooked by this. But he's now resolved to continue, and he jumps in the car and starts driving with increased urgency. They pass the sign to, as you say, Camp Arcadia. They also pass an angry guy, like a survivalist in military fatigues, and a strange guy in a fanny pack, as the Americans would call a bum bag, smiling with a vacant expression and waving at the gate of Camp (laughs) Arcadia. Who later, I think we find it's called David, is that right? He's David, yep, the camp mute. There's quite a lot of characters in this, isn't there? Yeah. I think one of the failings of this film is quite an ambitious cast of different people we're going to meet. But yeah, he is called David. You're right. Now, what they do quite well is in this initial 15 minutes of meeting the interns or members or inmates of Camp uh, Arcadia. I'm going to call them cultists, Paul. The cultists. Well, we don't know if they're a cult at the moment, do we? They are a cult. Oh. What I thought was good is he, I, it wasn't that clear how culty they were, but they were they were really edgy and a bit disconcerting. So the women, it's really not clear if they're flirty fishing or not, is it? <laughs> well, if they're all castrated, it doesn't matter, does it, what they do? Flirting is harmless, isn't it, if, 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 if everyone's castrated? I don't think they are castrated because the men have significant amounts of stubble, don't they? Which would be difficult to do if you're castrated. Oh, okay. Do they have... Well, the one guy's got a beard... Or would it? I think once your root hair, once your hair is formed, it might stay, mind it. Oh, well, there oh, you go. I don't know about that. Oh, something to look up. All around the camp, they keep seeing the same symbol. The same one, actually, that they hung on their mum's memorial. It's like a circle. Well, it's just a circle, isn't it? Uh, I don't need to dress it up any more than that. A circle seems to be a symbol that you see all over the camp. And they're greeted by what you assume is the leader guy, who I think is called Hal. He is called Hal. And very soon, Hal takes him to show him show them his physics equation. He does. He has a blackboard with some crazy equation on it. They've also been given some of the beer that they brew and apparently try to sell to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. So there's a guy called Tim, the bearded guy. He's beardy. He brews this beer. And he's the keeper of the hut. What is in the hut, we don't quite know. It has a comically large padlock on the hut, though, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Now, the two flirty fishes, who I think are, have been told to flirt with them, are Anna and Lizzie. And Lizzie, okay. yeah. But I'm not sure which is which. All of the camp members, and this is another reason we know it's a cult, Paul, they all have, like, a, a role, don't they? A job that they yes. do within the camp. Tim is obviously the brewer. Yeah. 
how I'm not sure. Is that just commune? I, so I was I was basically the benefit of the doubt here, and I thought the film did it quite well. It's they're not particularly culty; they're just a bit weird and communy, aren't they? A bit weird and communy. Okay, but let me ask you this then: Anna's boyfriend in the camp is a guy whose name I can't remember, but it's Shane. It's Shane, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. Shane's job in the camp is he's the camp magician. Yeah, now that was freaky. <laughs> it's not. I, I imagine if you're living in a commune, magician isn't one of those roles you're desperate to fill or that anyone really cares about. <laughs> in fact, it might be quite annoying to have a camp magician knocking around. And which who's their fashion designer? Is that Lizzie? That's Anna, isn't it? Anna's the That's fashion Anna. designer. Yeah. Again, another strange role, isn't it? To have a seasonal fashion designer. Magician Shane claims that you need a million hours practice to master something. I thought it was 10,000 myself. Ah, yeah, no. Ha. Well, I don't, I don't know whether that's a deliberate mistake or they're just kind of lampshading that. But I, I don't think 10,000 hours is to fully master something. It's just to become competent at it, isn't it? I see. Is that not true? I'm trying to think. Professional tennis player. 3,000 hours in preparation per year. 15 years. Yeah, I guess you're right. 50,000 hours, yeah, yeah. A million yeah. hours is quite a long time. Yeah. Mm. He said it was 112 years or something like that. Like the age of Methuselah or something. I don't know. Methuselah. Methuselah. Yeah, so so it is culty. It is communy. Yes, Imagine you, the beach with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. It is quite a bit like the beach, yeah. yeah. Minus any colourful clothing. Minus any partying. With a lot of lumberjack sort of plaid shirts. And quite a lot of muted, neutral, love, laugh, live kind of interiors. When Justin goes for a run around the camp, basically it's like centre parks, isn't it? There's a yes. lot of people doing like outdoor activities. Except there's one guy riding a motorcycle with a bunch of crows flying after him. <laughs> he runs past another of those wiggly sticks at one point. And he sees that same determined survivalist guy walking, but completely ignoring him, walking in, in, in a straight line kind of thing. And that evening, they're all gathered around the completely circular fire pit. And then we get more cultish in, in, in implications, because unlike on the beach, they're not having a good time. They're having a forced good time, aren't they? They all drink the beer at the same time, okay? Yeah. See, uh, I, w- I wouldn't be drinking the beer in the cult, in the cult no. camp. That would not be. I would be partaking of their herb, whatever. I don't think it was marijuana, was it? The red flower stuff. Yeah, they have a drug that they smoke, don't they? I thought the actress did that really well. The way she, the way she taught to try and convince her to take the drug, was like at so many festivals that slightly manipulative using kind of thing that drug users do to each other. Yes, it, it was very well portrayed. I thought the equation on the blackboard seemed to be some kind of. Like quantum mechanical thing, right? Oh, I thought it might be just a boring old Taylor series, but was it? Maybe it was. There's, Can't remember. I, I think there was like a Hamiltonian operator in there. Was the R? Yes, that would make sense. And there was certainly a phi, which I was assuming was the the wave equation. But but I think it's just there to indicate that Hal is the physics intellectual kind of guy, isn't he? But he he doesn't seem to know what the equation means. He hasn't solved the whole thing. Now, as part of the enforced camp fun, they'll have to go and have a tug of war with a rope that ascends into the sky. <laughs> yes, that's true, yeah. Have I described that? Well, maybe not clearly, <laughs> but correctly. That is essentially what happens, yeah. It's after they've had a magic trick from Shane, and it's Justin, the older cynical brother, doing it. He picks a card from the deck. It's the King of Hearts. He puts it back in the deck, and then Shane flicks... One card from the deck, catch it in his other hand, shows it to him. It is the King of Hearts, but Justin says it's not. <laughs> he doesn't want to give Shane the satisfaction. And then he does another trick. He tosses a baseball up once, twice, and on the third time it doesn't come back down. And then he holds Justin's hand out upright. And as he does that, the ball lands in it seconds later. And then, as you say, Hal, I think, yells, time for the struggle. It is this tug of war where one person goes up grabs this rope it seems to be stretching off up toward a light in the sky or is it the moon i wasn't sure it's the moon because guess what we're about to have two moons appear the first of symmetry ideas of symmetry and reflection appears justin thinks that the rope thing is just dave the the mute one up a ladder pulling on the rope 
uh, and they get this explanation of why Dave doesn't speak anymore. Someone says either he fell off a building or self-trepanation, which is drilling a hole in your head, isn't it? Something you were wanting to do, as I recall, when, when you are at university, Paul. <laughs> I don't think I was, Richard. <laughs> you, you brought it up. You mentioned it. Relieving doesn't mean I want to do it. Pressure hey, in I might sometimes sip a beer. It doesn't mean I want people to pour vodka down my throat. <laughs> oh, well, you just wanted a minor hole, did you? Well, it doesn't imply consent, does it? I think Aaron does manage to pull the rope hard enough that he wins the tug of war, doesn't he? He does, yeah. But Justin tries to do it and he gets pulled over. In fact, the rope gets whipped from his hands. It cuts his hands, doesn't it? They question about the moons, okay? And weirdly, the the, the whole group, they, they, they don't try to put it in, in occultist reference. They say, oh, it's just supposed to be an atmospheric phenomenon. But they do say that three moons, if they appear, signifies the ascension. Yes. So it's all turning a bit weird, isn't it? But I think they do this quite well, is that nothing's necessarily explained. Nothing kind of fits. And I, I like the fact that we're put in the shoes of our two protagonists in the... Just disconcerting, isn't it? It is disconcerting. But Aaron is desperate to stay one more day. Apart from anything else, he kind of fancies Anna, even though yeah. Anna is Shane's girlfriend, apparently. Although they have a discussion about whether or not Shane is castrated anyway and does it really matter. That night, Justin is just pointing out to Aaron that Anna used to make eyes at him when he was just a boy, suggesting yeah. you know that she might be a paedophile and she should, should be careful around that's strange, anyway. So that whole conversation. I think it was there to signify a brother brother conversation, wasn't it, more than anything else? But also, I think, as we will learn later, it's to suggest that the people in the camp are not ageing. Ah, Aaron right. is remembering them as they were, but they're older now, and the people in the camp maybe are not so much older. Because they mentioned something about, you know, clean living, fresh air and local Beer. food and stuff, don't they? Mm. Next day, for some reason... Go fishing. No, they go shooting. Oh, do they? All right. They go shooting. Aaron and Justin are away from the others. They're out. They've got bottles on the fallen log or something. But Justin, although Aaron's shooting the bottles fine, Justin can't hit the bottle. He can't, no. I remember this now, yeah. He shoots, and there's an impact on the ground, sort of not far from him, not where he was pointing at all. And when he goes down to inspect it, the bullet is there as if it's bounced off something, and he can't explain it. Like there was a kind of shield in the way. And he then, I think he sees that creepy survivalist guy. He doesn't say anything. He disappears around a bush very quickly near one of those weird knobbly sticks. And he looks down and he sees a, a shoe spotted with blood, I think. Whoa. It's a very weird event, isn't it? I don't remember any of this. I just remember they go fishing soon, don't they? Tell me they go fishing next, Richard. Well, there's another weird event. Justin oh. finds himself... He's walking along, there's a puff of dust, and the sun flickers briefly. The sun flickers. And he finds himself standing in a ring, a circle of Polaroid photographs. We've learned that Justin used to be the camp photographer. They've mentioned this photography. And he picks up one of, the, one of the Polaroids, and I think it's of him looking like as if he was looking directly down the camera, but it's where he is, where he stood. I see. This is all seen near more of these knobbly sticks. <laughs> and we see a shot of a tent surrounded by a load of knobbly sticks in a circle. So an old-timey kind of upright, thick canvas tent. And oh. there's weirdly a clock on the outs- hanging on the outside of it. Oh, yes. And it's showing sort of 10 seconds. Repeating. The, the second hand moves 10 seconds, and then it flicks back and repeats over okay, and over so we- again. So these sticks are kind of like the encirclement of little special time loop zones, would that be correct? Seems that way. Little bits of Albanian communist fashion preserved for the Fittingly, world. I got a real strong sense of deja vu watching this film, particularly around this bit. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it, but it seemed really familiar, especially this bit. Tell me we're going fishing now, Richard. Is that the next thing? <laughs> it is. Please. Well, they go, the reason they go fishing... The reason they go fishing is Justin shows the Polaroid to Hal and Hal doesn't uh. know what it is, but I think he tells him to stay one more day, go fishing to the boy that's on one of the Polaroids in the, in the lake that's and dive right. down and find what's under there. Justin does that, doesn't he? Now, Aaron's about to jump in after him because he goes for a long, long time and he comes back with a toolbox. They've been told, by the way, that there's two moons, as you say, 
that night. And they're told that there are three moons for the Ascension, which they equate with death, obviously. Yeah. So that's like the time limit. Once you reach three full moons, you know, things are going are gonna to go Okay, wrong. so they've got a toolbox that's weighed down with stones. When you open it up, there's a tape inside. Yeah, another tape. And they're freaked out, aren't they? Because, like, all these clues are just too obvious and too in their face. And Justin is, wants to leave straight away. Before they've done this, Justin met a weeping woman who lives in one of the camp huts or a caravan. She's the one who's been leaving post-its all around the camp saying, wow. please be quiet. She's at the end of a tether. She's called Jennifer. Don't think she's really a cultist as such. Ah, <gasps> oh, that's right, yeah. She says that she's married. Yeah. But the, the men here are harmless, so she can stay here. Again, I think it's an allusion to maybe they're castrated. I don't know. Yeah. But her husband disappeared around these parts. She's turned up looking for what happened to him. That's right. Hal found her, the leader of the cult, promised to help her find him. She says that she seems, she seems to think she's been in the camp for a long time. But she goes back to bed, which apparently is where she spends most of her time. And then it's the next day when they go fishing. And as you say, Justin dives into the water suddenly, just strips off and jumps in. Aaron's waiting anxiously in the boat. Justin pops up with his toolbox, as you mentioned. We see an aerial shot then from above the boat, don't we? Yeah, it's a good shot. And what do you we see? We see some sort of dark entity spreading out underneath the boat. Yeah, it's like something down there. Right. What's in the box? What's in the box? A tape. Another it tape. is a tape. It is a tape. Justin, at this point... He's resolved to leave. He's telling Aaron that they must do. But Aaron insists they've got to say goodbye to everybody. They've been so nice to them. That's what cults do, Paul. Lizzie, the girl who I think is Hal's girlfriend, but has been flirting with Justin all the time. I think she's the camp artist, isn't she? She always does these alarming pictures of dark monsters looming over the place, don't they? Now, she came from the nearby mental institute, didn't she? That's her backstory, yeah. Wandering in the They've all arrived, they've all wandered here, haven't they? That's true, yeah. In somewhat desperate situations or, you know, in in strange circumstances. Which is a clue, I think, to people that want to read ahead to what it all means in the end. They play the videotape because they're showing it to Hal and the rest of the group. Seems like they're expecting these kind of messages to show up. Mm -hmm. It's a video of an interview with camp members, perhaps in the past... Some guy sort of proselytising their the reason for being, who knows. Difficult to understand what it really means. Hal says it's a message of forgiveness. They're trying to forgive Aaron and Justin for lying about castration, which he says is a myth, and for leaving the camp and lying about them. And he claims that he pulled both of them as kids from their mother's burning car when they had the accident down the road. So they've arrived under strange, under strange circumstances too. As well, yeah, that's how they got there. And Justin brings up the woman who was crying, Jennifer, she's called, and her missing husband. Aaron is convinced he wants to stay, but Justin is out of there. And I think actually Hal tells Justin to go now. He mm-hmm. goes back to the car they arrived in. Unfortunately, the interior light had been left on. And it, it, does happen. it no longer starts. Justin starts walking. He goes past more of those weird poles. And he finds himself in a kind of little farmstead where that survivalist guy apparently lives. Now, this is the first of our sort of little cameos or little little montages on a time loop, isn't it? As we like to find out. Well, he goes inside the barn of this place and he finds the gruesome sight of that survivalist guy hanging. As he's looking at that, an identical and very angry guy storms in and yells at him for trespassing, basically. And he's aware of the fact that he himself is hanging from the rafters, isn't he? So Completely like he aware. Himself. This guy seems to know exactly what's going on, and he says it's time loops. And he says that it's for these things' amusement. I think he's referring to the thing in the lake, or the yes. looming eyes that we see in Lizzie's picture. And he says that you have to kill yourself before the restart. I think his idea is sort of retaining some agency by choosing the moment that it happens. Mm-hmm. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you how to get out of here, is that right? He's going to draw on a map, yeah. That's right. But he wants a gun. And he it's tells him to go and get a gun from the gun-mad tweaker guy that people are actually in camp have referred to. And he gives him another map to get to that guy's place. And he gives him a compass. He says... Only use this compass. Yeah, follow it. He says that if you're still in the borders of this thing when the loop resets, you'll be stuck forever, like presumably he is. Mm. 
And then he flicks his cigarette past one of those magic sticks and it seems to disappear like there's a barrier there. Then he walks past it himself and disappears. And then he reappears behind coming out the door saying he's stuck, you know, demonstrates it. He says a really disturbing thing. He says they don't let him sleep. So he can't dream because he can never go to sleep. Presumably he's in quite a short time loop. Maybe that's why he's always running everywhere and ignoring people. Justin, who else does he meet? He meets somebody else, doesn't he? Well, obviously the guy is told to get the, the, yeah. the gun off. He stalks off following this map and eventually he does make him his way to this other dwelling, this like house that's being renovated or repaired or something in the middle of the forest. Through this time, Aaron is back at camp with Hal. They're talking about going to find Justin. And you can see now that there are three moons in the sky, although perhaps one of them isn't completely full. A little bit occluded, yeah. It's not quite full, is it? Aaron sets out to go and find Justin and he goes past one of those knobbly sticks and he mm-hmm. realises he's now become invisible to Anna, who's just on the other side of the barrier. He can see her, but she's not, obviously, she's not seeing him, it would seem. So lots of signification here, isn't there? It's like, and then they're at pains to really point out what's going on with this time loop and stuff like this, uh, which is nice. And we see now Justin arriving at the door of this house he goes inside and there's a guy chained to a bedstead or a radiator or something. He says, it's yeah. okay, my friend did this to me, I'm a drug addict, so he's getting me clean. He says that Carl, the survivalist guy, had sent him. This other guy, Mike, who's the friend of the tweaker who chained him up, comes in with a hard disk drive. He's, we've just seen him dig up, completely apropos of nothing. Don't know why. What's all that about? He plugs it into something and they watch a video and I we think do, yeah. we only hear the sound of the video, don't we? But it sounds terrifying. There's, like, screams and stuff. And Mike is explaining, again, to Justin that they're in an infinite loop. The two of them, Mike and this guy, obviously know each other. And I think he's ribbing the guy about his strange mannerisms and stuff and about how he'd greeted him when he'd shown up. By the way, Paul, and this is a just a call back to what I was mentioning earlier, these two in this house with this time loop and this change to the radiator thing. I think this is the subject of the, the other film, Resolution. I right. think Resolution is about the story of these two. I see. I believe. I, don't, I haven't seen it. Interesting. But that's what I've read. I think it focuses on them. So I'm more inclined to try and watch it as a consequence. Yes. All of these little vignettes and little scenes are very It's creepy. interesting amounts of detail, isn't it? I'm not sure any of it signifies to anything... You know, no. in particular, though. Do you it know what I mean? It doesn't really hang together. And it's a bit too much, isn't it? Like, the, the point you make, I didn't notice it, you know, that he becomes invisible to Anna. Oh, it's great detail, but you could just say, you could just say, oh, we're in a time where nobody can see us. You know, I, I don't think... Do we need to work it in so subtly? And is it vital? I yeah. don't think it is, is it? Yeah. You know, so... There's a lot of love and detail into, into detailing this whole idea they've got. But yeah, I guess we'll get onto that later. So I, I, he gets the guns, doesn't he? Is that right? He does, Eventually. he does. But as he's doing that, Mike is getting a can of petrol and a box of matches. Yeah, and he runs weird. up to the house, pulls it all around the entrance of the house, and then and stands there and sets fire yeah. himself. And we presume the whole house is going to go up with his friend inside as well. And is it going to repeat as well? Or what? The idea is that, again, they're taking control of the moment of the reset, aren't they? When they die, Justin is watching this... With some horror, obviously, but yeah. Mike is completely calm, isn't he? Standing on the stoop, I think that's what they call that kind of porch, on the stoop of the house with flames licking around him. He's standing there and then turns and walks inside the house, basically on fire. I think Justin... Finger licking good. ...realises that, you know, just like Carl, the survivalist, they're sort of taking control. I think he realises as he's taking this gun, watching this, that he's left the map to burn in the house. <laughs> but as he leaves... Guess he turns say, up. Mike turns up, and you see him meeting his friend and saying hello, and like, how you've been, it's been so long. So, yeah, their loop has just reset at their death. And Aaron finds something weird now, doesn't he? I'm not sure. He finds the old tent that we saw earlier with the yes. clock clicking. And he goes up to the tent, and there's a kind of... A window is the wrong word, but, you know, like a like a mesh to look through. He looks through the tent window thing, and there's an old-timey guy, like uh, in an old Civil War-style uniform. I don't know whether this links to Synchronic or something. Anyway, there's a guy in there 
He looks very sort of pale and drawn and almost monochrome, doesn't he? He's really grey. Yes. Every 10 seconds, he gets up out of his seat and moves from one side of the tent to the other to where we can't see him. And then there's like a scream or a noise. And then he reappears back in the chair. And he does this time and time again as Aaron watches. As he's doing it progressively, he starts trying to get a message across. He starts noticing Aaron at the window, doesn't he? Hmm. Again, it's a very creepy kind of set piece. Hmm. Yeah. So I think they're trying to set up a physical situ- a physics of the situation where in violent or extreme moments, we get stuck in a time loop. Therefore, we appear as ghosts. And when you're in your own time loop, other people in time loops will appear to you, as I guess Aaron appeared to the, you know, the old guy. And are they, are they trying to create a physics of apparition here, perhaps? Yeah. Aaron and Justin meet up at about this point, don't they? They start discussing things and everything they've learned, which is kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's a funny bit where Aaron says that he slept with Anna, and when Justin presses on him, he, he just means he went to sleep next to her. <laughs> <laughs> so another weird sex conversation between these two. Yeah, they're not really on the same sort of wavelength, are they talking about these kind of things? Now, Aaron still does not want to go back. Having seen what he's seen, he doesn't want to go back, does he? You mean he doesn't want to leave the camp? Leave the camp, yeah. That's right. He argues that it would be better to stay here and die in the sacred ritual of death by the dark identity, the all-seeing entity, than to go back and clean whatever they clean for a living. Justin goes back to the survivalist. They manage to make their way back there. He gives the gun to Carl, who presumably is going to kill himself with it. Yes. Carl gives him another map, which I think is what will get them out of there. Yeah. Now, when do we get back to see Tim and his lock unlocked? Aaron is insisting that they go back, isn't he? Yeah. He says a really interesting thing at this point. He says he wants to stay. He knows it's a loop in time. He's continually dying. He's saying it's better than doing the same thing on repeat in real life anyway. You know, he's, mm. he's clearly depressed in his cleaning job and he feels like they're getting nowhere and they're barely making ends meet and they can barely pay rent and stuff. Anything is better than the life you make me live, he says to Justin quite hurtfully, doesn't he? Bit blamey, if you ask me. <laughs> So they go back at the camp and they find the fire circle is out. A woman passes them on a bike. I think that might be Jennifer leaving. Not sure. And they see Tim by his hut with the massive headlock. Theatrically unlock it and drop it on the floor. Sort of an invitation for them to go and look. When they go and look, they find an archive. It's sort of packed to the ceiling with tapes and film reels and stuff. That the... Prodigious movie maker, the eye in the sky, has been making for them, presumably. When they start playing stuff from this archive, they see images, events from uh, from the film that we've all been watching, yeah. but from a different perspective. Like the trick with the baseball that Shane tosses in the air, we see from above. And there's various sort of little things like that, isn't there? Lots of detail, yeah. Lots and lots of detail. But again, what does it also, why, I mean, what does it open up? Does it open up a realisation? Does it open up a way out? I'm not really sure. What's it doing in the plot at this moment? Well, the other strange thing that happens is we see a shot of everyone circled around the fire pit now. And then a rope drops from the sky. I think we see it from above into the fire pit. At that point, everyone seems to sort of disintegrate. They do, yeah. Is that, am I interpreting the images correctly? Yeah, and there's a big sort of flame ball, isn't there? And Aaron runs the out, finds all of his friends dead, saddened that all his friends have gone. Realises he has to leave. Well, no, I mean, what happens oh. is he initially says, listen, I have to stay. Uh, you know, things are going to reset and everything will be fine. And Justin thinks about this and says, right, well, if you're staying, I've got to stay. You're my brother, I'm going to stay. At that, Aaron suddenly goes, yeah, well, that's all I wanted to hear. I just wanted to, oh. to kind of give in to me on and something. Then when did they go and see the RV that appears in the field? Is that later? We've, we've been past that. We've done that. Yeah. Oh, we've done that already, thank God. Phew. Okay, so he says, all I want to hear is that you love me. And there's an unconvincing moment where they say they love each other. Maybe that's before or after. They have to push start their car with a flat battery. Yeah, yeah they try and push it down the hill to, to jump start it, don't they? To bump start it. Now, there are no zombies chasing them. It would be nice if, they'd all t- if the camp members had turned into zombies and were chasing them. No, but what is chasing them, Paul, is a whirling black amorphous form that is destroying everything in its path. Correct, because it's, it's full moon time, isn't it? Well, it's full three moon time. 
It's destroyed everything because as they leave the camp, the camp members are there again, aren't they? Waving, waving at them sadly as they leave. I don't think so. they do anything quite as mawkish as wave, Paul. But we do oh. see the camp members again at the end. So are they reliving their death, or? I think what we see at the end is the camp members having been reset, and Hal is kind of smiling beatifically, isn't he? Oh. As if things had happened the way he wanted. Is he thinking at or, the end? This is how they left the last time. It's all on repeat when they were uh, kids. I don't ex- know. No, exactly. I was wondering, that is the whole thing a giant time loop? Yeah. Do they get you out see? of there? Yeah. So maybe they don't get out. Yeah. Which is annoying, isn't it? But I guess we're going to address these ideas pretty soon. Are we? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, one, okay. I, th- I think the idea of, you know, eye in the sky that's actually Robbie Williams taking photos of everybody... And then, you know, transferring its its psychokinetic abilities onto real videotape is daft. Why couldn't it just have it all appear as visions to them? Two, well, it's like... Okay. It's, it's a metaphor, silly, isn't, isn't it? It's a metaphor. Two, you know, I think maybe it would have been better to present all this as a collective hallucination. Right. But we don't really get that, do we? Because hmm. then we could see how the magic happened rather than it's uh, a malevolent... Thing, making the physics of balls momentarily happen according to how the magician wants it to happen. I don't know. Those. I mean, what did you think? Did, did it all tie together for you in Orange? Because it didn't for me, unfortunately. It doesn't really tie together because we don't. We're never going to be able to see or understand the motivation behind the malevolent entity. Why is it doing this? I think there's a suggestion by Carl that it's kind of sadistically torturing people by watching them in these time loops. But why be geographically limited? Why why be in a lake? Why be in a lake in a bit of forest? I don't... I yeah, don't why really... is it there? Also, how is it that even though people reset, that they remember that, or figure out that they're in a loop? How does that happen? It's death, isn't it? Reset means death, doesn't it? Presumably. Yeah. One way or another, I think that's true, yeah. So they're really in their moment of death, aren't they? Yes. So why do they, are they able to remember when... How can some of them have figured it out? Maybe all of them have figured it out. That's not clear, actually, is it, how many of them have figured it out? That they're all dead already. Uh, Look, there's quite a lot of mystery here. Isn't there? Just a bit too much, though, I find. What this film does do really well is it does evoke a sense of weirdness. Yes, it is weird. And uneasiness, creepiness. I like the the rules around the time. It's like, are are they reliving their death? I I do actually like the fact it's not particularly clear what's happening there. Yeah, absolutely. Or or is their trauma keeping them in the loop? Because I think, you know, towards the end, what do we get? We get, again, this idea of reflection. As they're heading out of the camp, they have to drive through a reflection of what's behind them. Is that correct? And so it's quite a simple metaphor. You have to leave, you have to leave reflecting on the past behind in order to move forward. So I think that's really, I think they've built the whole movie to put that visual metaphor at the end, haven't they? Kind of thing. Let's remember the quote at the beginning of the film that the strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Yes. Cleverly, they don't try to explain what is really going on because that would just drain the, the terror and the, the mystery. True. Would kill the fear, wouldn't it? It's treading a fine line, isn't it? And always must be with this kind of a mystery film. But in the hills of San Diego, I thought it was evocative. You know, it's it's Hotel California, isn't it? They had to find a passage back to the place they were before, you know, kind of thing. And it seems a simple thing is not get locked in contemplating your trauma. You know, just get in the jacuzzi. Head on with your life, you know, get down to those Hollywood editions kind of thing. Yeah, generally a bit blur, I thought, at the end. But I did like, one, the detail world building, although it was a bit much. And I did like the, not the audacity, but the courage to sort of, you know, have this whole metaphysical and sort of this supernatural kind of physical world of time loops and stuff like that. So. You've also got to commend them on a small budget, doing a lot with it. I don't know what the budget was. I do know, I do know it did quite well at the box office. It made a million. Okay. But I know it, it, what I've heard from the reviews, it was a tiny, tiny budget. But I don't know how tiny it was. Let's talk about the acting then, Paul. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I love the acting. You know, I think there were one or two moments where, at the beginning, the first 20 minutes, it's like... The, obviously, the directors or the writers and and and, the, and I think producers are the same thing. These 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 two these two people, uh, well, the two lead actors also aren't they? They've told everybody. Oh, damn. So you already know that Aaron, 
is played by Aaron Moorhead yes. and Justin by Justin Benson, who are yes. the directors of the film. Directors, maybe producers, certainly screen, uh, screen, did the screenplay, one of them, I think. Yeah, so obviously a very small budget. They've not See, paid I, I thought I was going to be able to cunningly, deliciously reveal that to you, Paul. I'm sorry about You figured that. it out. No, but, that's very good. Well done. So I think they carry their performances quite well. They're very, very, they're really bought into their roles. But I think given, given that it's a small small directorial team, they've probably said to everybody, okay, handed out the lines maybe a day before and said, okay, uh, I want you to be kind of friendly and weird and a bit disconcerting generally. And I think everybody has only had like one day to be that kind of campsy, kind of culty, kind of sort of T-Rex smiled, kind of aggressively smiling kind of freaky person kind of thing. I think the beginning of it is just a little bit shaky in terms of the directorial sort of directorial advice that they've been given to the actors. But generally, I think, yeah, the whole crew and the whole, sorry, the whole cast do a fairly good job of being weird and being kind of slightly off-key. Yeah. I've I got to say, for me, I think the two directors, actor-directors, are probably the weakest in the cast, in a way. Yes. Uh, not uh, not by much. I mean, they do a fine job, but they didn't totally persuade me. Um, I thought Aaron was a little bit too... What's the word? Naive. Well, I, I didn't really get an emotional journey from, did you? Maybe at the very end, of course, but it's a very quick turning on a dime kind of thing, wasn't it? Mm. And I didn't really buy into their brother dynamics either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there you go. They, they were doing it partly for budgetary reasons. They were sure. taking those roles. And also directing the film can't be easy. I mean, I'm not... I'm really not knocking them for it. But I thought they were the weakest... So for acting, I'm going to give it um, a seven. I'm giving it a six for acting. Oh, yeah, less generous than me. All right, so plot then. Justin. Can't screenplay and the rest, yeah. Justin responsible for writing this. Uh, Right, okay, so Echoes maybe a little bit of David Lynch. Well, this is a time loop movie, and... You know, it's like a whole genre to itself, isn't it? I mean, we watched Happy Death Day, didn't we? Which is another time loop movie. There are many more. In fact, I was so inspired by this, I've added a couple more time loop movies to our wanted list. It's a big genre, isn't it? Groundhog Day, perhaps the most famous time loop movie. So, uh, I had echoes of kind of Nicolas Cage in two movies. We've had him in a Lovecraft remake, haven't we? But yes. we also had him in the one that we never actually got a review because I lost my uh, audio files. Mandy. Nicolas Cage in Mandy. the woods kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I really got real sort of echoes of those two movies. I don't know if you agree with that. I do kind of agree with that. And it's interesting you mentioned Lovecraft, isn't it? Because it is, this is a Lovecraftian mystery. This is very Lovecraftian. Yeah. Which, Cosmic horror, yeah. You very rarely see that achieved well, I think, in cinema. The Nicolas Cage one we saw, The Colour Out of Space. Tried to do the same, tried to blow our minds, didn't it? But it was a very gore-heavy, like, alien monster yeah. kind of style. Not really what Lovecraft does, is it? Lovecraft just hovers there with with just confusion and, and the terror of not knowing, doesn't he, really? Yeah, I think the essence of Lovecraft is a thing that's so cosmically big in yes, its horror. Yes, the size, you can't, you the can't size and the te- yeah. potential terror of an empty universe kind of thing, you know. Which... Get with this, I think. It's weird enough to do some of that work, yeah. Which and there's is, some David Lynch yeah. aspects too, definitely. So for plot, I'm prepared to go to it at eight here, I think. And yeah. It, it's marked down for the fact that inevitably they have to make it mysterious, and that's a little bit yeah. unsatisfying. I didn't like the the sort of moonstone wishy-washiness of the time loopery. Uh, like there was a bit too much crystal wishing going on there you know what I mean I couldn't Uh, tell you the uh, rules of the game here what happens if you if we've got a physics equation on a on a a chalkboard we do expect later an exposition right or wrong maybe you know it could be part of the plot where they're guessing at what's happening but they're wrong about it but we I expected exposition to follow and nothing ever came did it so for me that brought it down quite a lot so therefore I'm going to go 6.5 okay Let's talk about special effects then. Low budget film, and yet... I like the SFX here. Inevitably kind of subtle, but what they did do, I thought was really well done. I thought the fact that budgetary constraints really had... They had to dial down what they were able to do. 
they had to choose carefully, I think, where to use it. And it was really good. When we got like an RV, when we got a trailer home suddenly appearing, I was like, whoa, yeah, that was I, freaky. You know? I mean, I guess it's all like after effects. and it's not Very like cheaply it's- done, I imagine, you know. But competent, but very competent. Competent. Uh, I liked the subtle kind of hint of this entity that kind of sways through the forest. I think if they had more money, we would have had rustling leaves and sort of chilling breezes around the characters, wouldn't we? And that kind of thing. But no, yeah, done that very rustling well. Rustling leaves money, you don't get many of them to the well, <laughs> it's expensive to do that, isn't it? You know, you need several, several, several blowers and, uh, and that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, and those goosebump chills that you've got to portray. I don't know. No, for me, good. 8.5. I really thought that it tied in and matched well with the movie's intent. I'll give it a 7. Mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I was never really sure what those knobbly stick things were supposed to be. Well, or... apparently, in one of the rooms, there's different cultures' interpretation of the entity. Um, for like mini totems of the gods, totem I pole. imagine. Yeah, yeah. But very small totems. Hmm. It's not a god, is it? It's a malevolent entity, so there we go. Sure. Yeah. It didn't trouble me too much. I just did wonder. It's one of the shonkier aspects of the movie, isn't it? Do you think we could describe this as a horror movie? Is this an October Halloween horror movie? It's Lovecraftian horror, definitely. Well, let's do fear factor then. Or general general discomfort factor. It was discomforting. <laughs> Absolutely. At the start of the movie, I found it very uncomfortable with the whole cult thing and the whole idea yeah. of them going back to the cult I found quite creepy because not much ends up being made of that and we don't ever find out whether they were castrated which I know is disappointing to you <laughs> as it is to me well I mean I'd like to know because I, I need to know can castrated men maintain a beard or not <laughs> so I guess we've got to find out for it? the listeners please write in and then of course yeah as you say it moves into a kind of malevolent alien cosmic presence thing that's doing weird stuff. It's definitely creepy. No, like, cheap jump scares on the whole, which is good, I think. So, yeah, I liked it. I've got to give it an eight for horror factor. Uh-huh. Did I score it for horror? I don't think I did, did I? I don't think so. Uh, seven. And my final score overall is definitely a seven. I might go as far as an eight. I quite like this. this. Good value for money, low budget... I thought it was better than, than Synchronic, which we had all kinds of things to say about in terms of the time travel physics. I thought it was, this was a more interesting film. And I'm struck by the fact that I had such a powerful deja vu watching it. Maybe I have seen it or parts of it before, I don't know. It really added to the whole sense of that film. And it, makes me, it does make me want to see Resolution. But whether we see it next week or not, I don't know, Paul. And the big question is, should we watch another horror movie since it's the month of October. Yes. I think the answer is yes, we absolutely should. I know I briefly said people had asked about Lars von Trier, but you flatly rejected the idea of watching Lars von Trier. For the moment, yeah. I'm not quite in the right psychological frame of mind. Yeah, you need to be in a tougher position for that. Yes. I would instead then suggest a film which I think has been highly regarded. Talk to me. Talk to me. Okay. I I don't know, Richard. I don't know the movie, but I'll keep talking. Right, okay, so no, I'll keep the, talking. The movie oh, is oh, called Talk oh, oh, to oh, Me. Oh, okay, the movie is called Talk to Me. Okay, I see. Okay, now. There we go. So, <laughs> talk to Me it is then for next week's film. There we go. For this week, thank you for listening. Ever so much. And goodbye for now. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye. Bye. <laughs>